This is a Sunday talk by Joel, titled, The Retreat, recorded July 21st, 1996, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Starting today after our meeting, Jennifer, my wife, is heading south to California, and she's going to first be on a five-day retreat at the Immaculate Heart Hermitage, in Big Sur, and then she's going to go on uh, traveling a little bit more down to Southern California and then come back and stay one night at Tassajara, which is a, a Zen retreat center, but also accepts uh, visitors. So she will be gone two weeks, uh, part of that time in a fairly intense retreat. So I thought I'd take this opportunity to talk about retreat and what is a spiritual treat and what sorts of retreats are there? Why do people go on retreats? Uh, try to answer those sorts of questions. The Pawnee chief, Letakotz Lessa, said, When a man sought to know how he should live, he went into solitude and cried until some animal brought wisdom to him. In other words, he went into retreat. This is... Uh, a perfect example of going uh, into retreat. And retreat is probably the most ancient spiritual practice there is. It certainly goes back to shamanic times and uh, the origins of retreat are lost in the dawn of history, so to speak. But if we look at shamanic cultures, we find the retreat is very, very common and one of the central practices uh, of that, that form of religion. So it is extremely ancient. It's also found, however, in many other traditions. For instance, here's the Hindu classic, the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, here's what it says about this. The man of discipline will train himself continually in a secret place, alone, restraining himself in his thought completely, without having or wishing for anything. The man of discipline will train himself, so this indicates it's a kind of training here, continually in a secret place, so this is the idea of going off someplace, and for the purposes of uh, uh, continuing this training in a very intense way, alone, restraining himself and his thought, that has this sense of uh, going inward, without having or wishing for anything. And that's a sense of uh, stripping your uh, self bare of everything that is inessential and not spending your time uh, wishing for things and so forth. The, there are other very famous examples from all the great traditions. For instance, we think of Moses on Mount Sinai. <clears throat> Moses simply went on a retreat, a vision quest. He goes off to Mount Sinai and he meets God. Uh, the Buddha under the Bodhi tree, another famous example of a retreat. The Buddha made a retreat uh, under, uh, under, sat under this Bodhi tree. Uh, the Buddha had already been an ascetic, and he lived with five or six companions. I've forgotten the exact number, and they were already ascetics. They were already had renounced the world and were living in the forest and doing these uh, very austere disciplines. But uh, even at that point, the Buddha felt it was necessary to go off alone, just to be completely alone. He even gave up those ascetic practices and sat under the Bodhi tree until his enlightenment. Jesus, fasting in the desert for 40 days. Jesus begins his ministry, according to the Gospels, by going into the desert and fasting for 40 days. 
and at the end of that period he comes out uh, and he begins his teaching. And then Muhammad in the cave of Hira. Uh, Muhammad used to meditate in this cave. He'd leave his community, go off to this cave, and that's where the Quran uh, started to be revealed to him. The, the revelations of the Quran began while he was on retreat in this cave. So actually these are examples of the uh, founding moment of all these great traditions, and they all took place during a period of retreat. So why is a, a retreat necessary? Why is it such an important part of uh, all religious traditions? And uh, why does it continue to be practiced by spiritual seekers? Well, uh, the Eskimo shaman Igju Garjuk uh, starts to give us a clue. He says, True wisdom is only to be found far away from people, out in the great solitude. And it is not found in play but only through suffering. Solitude and suffering open the human mind, and therefore a shaman must seek his wisdom there. That's a very powerful, uh, succinct statement about what a retreat is all about. So let's try and look into this. Why does he say these two, mention these two things, solitude and suffering? Well, from the mystic's point of view, the cosmos is a multi-dimensional manifestation of the divine, if you like. And we have to understand a little bit about how mystics look at the cosmos and in order to understand the necessity of going on retreat and being in solitude and facing suffering. So I drew this little diagram on the blackboard here. Let me see if I can move out of the way enough so that you can all see it. Uh, to kind of illustrate this, to give you at least a very quick overview of how mystics view this. And of course, if you want to study this, uh, there's far more details than I am going to be able to present this morning. So we have on the blackboard uh, three concentric circles. And there are various ways to represent this structure, by the way. Uh, I've represented this structure from the subjective point of view. In other words, uh, you, could, you could flip all the values in this and have the uh, outer part of the blackboard represent the infinite divine mystery and the, and the inner part represent the realm of uh, matter, which is a finite realm. That would give you a spatial representation of the difference between infinity and, and uh, finitude in this. But in terms of the individual seeker's experience, it's much more of an experience of going inward. So I have... Uh, put the material realm on the out, outer ring and the uh, pure consciousness realm on the inner ring, and I'm going to go through this and explain it here in a moment uh, in a little bit more detail. The outer ring then represents the world of sensory phenomena. In Western cosmology, we call it the natural world, uh, the material world, the corporal world. Uh, the Buddhists would call this the nirmanakaya, uh, the Nirmanakaya means, uh, uh, has many meanings, but they always relate to a certain level of manifestation. In other words, the Buddha, the historical Buddha, manifested in a physical body, Nirmanakaya body. The Buddha also has other bodies, uh, as we will see in a moment. But the bodies, the, the name of the body also is a name of the 
realm of manifestation in which this takes place. So all bodies uh, and so forth manifest in this realm. Uh, one way of describing this in Hinduism is in terms of the states of consciousness that we go through through a normal day. So this would be the waking state, basically, this realm is represented uh, by. Um, it's also the uh, uh, realm of the ego, even though the ego is not a material thing, but the ego in the sense of attention, where attention is focused, uh, the ego would be placed in this realm with a little, a little uh, passageway here leading into other realms, as I've been, tried to indicate by a break in the circle there. Uh, it's because it's also the realm of personal thoughts, fantasies, daydreams, imagination, the, the, uh, the kinds of phenomena that manifest in your head that you feel that you are creating or engaging in. It has that personal sense. So psychologically, we would say this is the realm of the ego, the field of the operation of the ego, this whole outer ring. But from a mystic's point of view, this is by no means the only realm of reality. This, in fact, is a manifestation of a whole other realm of reality. And the other realm of reality, then, is represented by this middle uh, ring here. And this is the realm of what Plato called the archetypes, these principles uh, that govern how this sensory realm manifests. Uh, in modern science, we could say this is the realm of the uh, mathematical laws of science. Uh, it's also the, uh, the logos of uh, the Christian tradition, the logos being uh, the the, the opening of the Gospel of John begins with, um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and not anything was made without Him. The, the Word is a translation of Greek logos, which means more than just a, a word of speech. It means a whole uh, order of manifestation, if you like. Uh, this is also the realm in Sufism and Islam of the divine names, the same idea that this, this outer realm is a manifestation of these uh, basic principles that are expressed through the divine names of God, the all-merciful, the all-knowing, the all-powerful, things like that. Uh, in the Hindu tradition, this is the dream state uh, as opposed to the waking state. In the Buddhist tradition, it's the Sambhogakaya, this is the realm of the uh, manifestation of the illusory body of the Buddha. In other words, if the Buddha appears to you in a dream and teaches you, that's the Buddha taking on a, an illusory body to appear to you. And then this whole realm is that realm of archetypal experience. Um, it's, uh, excuse me, it's characterized by uh, phenomena, particularly what we would consider mental phenomena, that aren't personal. So, for instance, you might have a dream that deals with your personal life, the problems you've been having during the day at work and so forth. That would be sort of somewhere hovering on the borderline here. But if this was a dream in which, let's say, an angel appeared to you and gave you some very specific guidance, that would be considered an archetypal figure appearing to you in your dream. It's, it's, it comes from beyond that sense of personal identity and personal ego. But even this realm is a manifestation of something uh, deeper. 
And this, of course, is uh, uh, given different names in different traditions. Uh, I've put down here consciousness without an object. This was the term that uh, one of my teachers, Dr. Wolf, used to describe this. I, I put that down here because it's probably the most generic term I know of. But, for instance, Plato called it uh, reality itself, that even the, the archetypes are manifestations of this nameless, infinite, formless reality. Um, other traditions call it, uh, the Buddhists call this the Dharmakaya, the mind of the Buddha, the, the pure mind of the Buddha. Uh, it would be in, uh, in the Hindu tradition, it would be the state of dreamless sleep. Uh, in uh, the uh, Sufi tradition, it would be Allah, the, the God is pure transcendence. And it's always characterized by uh, a negative description. It doesn't have any form. It doesn't have any attributes. It doesn't have any distinctions. So the terms that are used for it are negative terms. The Lao Tzu, the great uh, Taoist uh, master, said the Tao which can be named is not the true Tao. And that uh, sums this up uh, explicitly. Anytime we try to put a name on it, we're in a sense falsifying it. We do use names, and mystics do use names as fingers pointing to the moon, as the Buddhists like to say. But we should never mistake any uh, mental characterization of this as being um, an attribute of that realm, because it is really this, uh, this uh, it's totally empty of any attributes, but it's the uh, total fullness, on the other hand. All the possibilities of all the other realms are already contained within this consciousness without an object. Now, the problem is, when we are identified with the ego, uh, with the, the body, the thoughts, emotions, and so forth that manifest here, and we are identified with all the needs of the body, we're identified with the desires and aversions and so forth, we are so busy uh, running around in the outer ring here that we don't notice these other realms. We literally ignore them. And so this, it's kind of like tunnel vision, you know, if you're uh, out in the woods and you have, you're out in nature and the great wilderness and so forth, and if you uh, fixate on a Coca-Cola can that someone's left and you sit there worrying about the Coca-Cola can, thinking about the Coca-Cola can and so forth, you don't notice uh, the sunsets, uh, you know, the wildlife and so forth. And this is really a, a good analogy for our situation when we are totally identified with the ego and its problems and uh, its concerns and so forth. I've uh, marked the phenomena here, these little circles with a uh, plus and a minus sign to indicate all the objects in this realm uh, that we judge as being desirable or repulsive. And we spend our time rushing after these uh, desirable objects and trying to avoid all the repulsive ones, uh, the things we like, trying to get the things we like and uh, stay away from the things that we don't like. And the trouble is, this rushing around, this identification, this rushing around itself, it generates suffering. And the more suffering it generates, the more we run around. So it's a little bit like somebody trying to run away from their shadow. They suddenly get frightened of their shadow, and they think their shadow is chasing them, and so they start running faster, and the shadow, of course, starts running faster, and they run faster, and the shadow runs faster, and they become totally obsessed with this illusion uh, that this, somebody's after them and trying to kill them and so forth. So there, there's the ego, uh, uh, the ego 
part of us or, or our delusion that we are an ego involves this constant activity. Now, this is, by the way, something you can just observe in your own life, you know, you, mentally and physically, all day long, from the moment we wake up, uh, we're planning, we're doing, we're uh, judging whether we, what we like, what we don't like, we're moving, 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 physically and mentally, more importantly, moving, moving, moving. So, when that happens, we ignore these other realms, they become veiled to us, as the Sufis say. As the Buddhists would say, they become obstructed. We don't see them. They're hidden to our normal uh, awareness. As Augustine says, the great Christian saint, they strive to comprehend things eternal while their hearts flutter between things past and to come and is still unstable. Who shall hold it and fix it that it be settled a while and a while catch the glory of that ever-fixed eternity? And this sums up the uh, problem of someone starting on a spiritual path who wants to become aware of these deeper dimensions of reality. Our hearts, our minds are fluttering after, uh, chasing after the past, the present, the things in the present, things in the future. You know, we're always worried what's going to happen tomorrow. We're always concerned of what we did wrong yesterday and so forth. There's no stability. The attention is not stable. It is not fixed. So this gives us a clue to why Igarjuk said the two things that we have to uh, face in retreat, or two reasons we go into retreat, two things to, uh, to experience, are solitude and suffering. Solitude is fairly easy to understand in relation to this. It, we want to get away from these distractions of all these worldly concerns. So just at a, at a very uh, gross level, uh, you go into retreat and... Their phones don't ring, people don't come knock on your door. Uh, you're eliminating as many distractions as possible. Uh, you don't uh, have a TV, you don't have a radio, you don't uh, take books unless you're going to specifically study a spiritual text or something. So you go into an environment where you don't have all these distractions. So that's why solitude is necessary. Suffering is a little bit harder to uh, understand what is meant by this. But first of all, if we look at the shamanic traditions themselves, part of the retreat of many shamanic traditions is to purposely induce the suffering. Uh, to, for instance, do extreme forms of fasting. Uh, no food, no water, uh, no sleep. Uh, deprivation of, of things that we uh, normally give us comfort and pleasure. Uh, they may involve even uh, extreme ascetic practices like a piercing of the flesh, which is common in the Lakota tradition, many Native American traditions. Um, all sorts of uh, things that, from our point of view, can seem sort of morbid. The idea here is, is to uh, be an antidote to our normal tendency to constantly be running and running away from suffering. So the idea here is uh, to face it and to experience it and then transcend it get to a state of mind where that is uh, no longer what is prominent in your attention, what is holding your attention. And then your mind is, as Igarjuk said, is opened. Now, uh, many of us uh, in this, coming from this culture are not prepared for such rigorous practice. And in point of fact, it probably would not do what it's supposed to do because it would uh, probably overwhelm us with the suffering and we'd never get beyond that. Uh, 
especially if you try to do it on your own without a lot of preparation and training and under the direction of somebody, a shaman, who knew what they were doing. But also, we come from a much more spoiled culture. And to go on retreat, uh, anybody who goes on retreat from this culture is going to uh, face a, a little suffering. You're going to face some discomforts. Uh, you're going to face uh, just the very lack of stimuli coming from a culture like this is going to be a form of suffering. Just the to uh, make an attempt to be still for a while, uh, to settle your heart, you will find uh, all sorts of restlessness and boredom arises. So in that sense, instead of running away from that, you just stay with it. It's the same principle as even uh, as these uh, are exercised in these extreme shamanic traditions, extreme from our point of view. And the idea is to then, whatever is going on in your environment and so forth, you ignore, ultimately. And you are looking inward. You are turning inward. You are trying to uh, wipe the mental slate clean so these other realms can start shining through. Uh, it's a little bit like if you live in a city and you want to see the stars, very often you cannot see the stars in the city because of all the lights and the neon and so forth and the smog. If you want to see the stars, you leave the city, you go out to the desert or the wilderness, and there they are. It's not that the stars aren't there. Right, right now they're there. It's the, that the light of the sun and everything uh, hides them. So you eliminate all that, and then what's naturally there just starts to shine through. Uh, there's a little story about Rabia, who was a, great, a famous Sufi, and this little story about her illustrates uh, this whole principle of going on retreat. A friend was passing by Rabia's house and called to her and said, It's spring, Rabia. Why not come outside and look at all the beauty God has made? And Rabia replied, Why not come inside instead and see the one who has made it all, naked and without veil? So this is very interesting because it's not a denial that this uh, realm of sensory phenomena isn't ultimately a manifestation of God. We don't know that, though. That's our problem. We don't see it. And so in order to see it, if you go in and you, and you find that God, that maker of all this, and you experience that naked and unveiled, then you see what this all is, which is nothing but a manifestation of that. Now, in the great traditions, there are many kinds of retreats for many different kinds of purposes and so forth. So I just thought I'd give you at least a, a, a brief um, outline of, of why you might take different sorts of retreats and, and the kinds of retreats you could take. And again, this is by no means exhaustive because uh, over the thousands of years that these traditions have been around, all this has been refined uh, to, to uh, minute detail. But one of the reasons you might take a retreat is to get some guidance in your life and how you should live your life. This was quite common among the Native Americans. Here's George Sword, who is Lakota elder, and he says, If a boy or a young man wishes to know what he should do all his life, he should seek a vision. Then he goes off in a vision quest. And uh, vision quests can produce visions that will determine the whole rest of the course of your life. Uh, Crazy Horse was a great Sioux warrior, Lakota warrior, that probably most of you are familiar with that name, had a vision early in his life that literally told him how to live his life. It told him that he would never be injured by uh, an enemy, so he didn't have to be afraid in battle and so forth, so he was completely fearless in battle. 
uh, it told him down to what he should wear, that he should wear this little stone behind his ear and a certain uh, lightning stripe he should paint, but nothing else, which was uncommon for Lakotas. They had lots, usually lots of decoration. Uh, Lakotas loved to dance and to boast about their conquests, and he was told in this vision not to do that. So the vision determined his behavior, it showed him how, literally, how to live, and he lived the rest of his life this way. And it actually turned out to be true. He was killed, not by an enemy, but by another fellow Lakota who had uh, be, turned, became a turncoat and was working for the, um, for the whites. Uh, but a vision quest won't necessarily produce that sort of vision for you. And one of the things you've got to remember about the vision quest, it is uh, the, the guidance is coming from another realm. It's not something that you can control with your ego. You have to go uh, humbly and you have to accept what you get. And the, the guidance may be uh, just something about the next step in your life. It may come in a symbolic form that needs interpretation, that you won't know what it means unless you go talk to somebody. And there happens that vision quests uh, are proof fruitless, that you won't get anything that time. And then again, the attitude that's recommended is one of humility and accepting that, and uh, later you might try again. A retreat can be undertaken to intensify a certain practice that you may be doing. For instance, we did this little breath meditation this morning, and you could take a retreat simply to do that breath meditation. And you would uh, then get an idea of what the intensity of this practice, because when you do it just half an hour a day, uh, that's, that's helpful, but you, you uh, advance more quickly in a relative sense through going on retreats and practicing these, uh, doing these practices more intensely. Uh, one example of this is found in a little book called uh, The Pilgrim's Way, which is about a Eastern Orthodox uh, seeker who runs across Starts, that's an Eastern Orthodox master in the Eastern Orthodox Church, who teaches him uh, the Jesus prayer, and the Jesus prayer is like a mantra. And at this time, this uh, seeker was living in a little hut on a, a farmer's land, and he worked several hours a day for the farmer to, uh, to pay the rent of the hut and to earn his food. So the starts said, well, do 3,000 repetitions per day of this Jesus prayer. And it worked out very well because uh, this seeker was, in a sense, in a retreat situation. He, just, he lived in this hut. He had to work a few hours for the farmer so he could do this. Uh, even when he was working for the farmer, he could continue this. And he did this for a few weeks or whatever, and he went back to the stars, and then the stars said, well, now do 6,000, and kept intensifying, intensifying the practice, until finally the practice became the seekers. He didn't need the stars anymore, as he described it, this prayer would just go on automatically all the time. And then he started traveling around Russia and had all sorts of adventures. We have that book in the library if you're interested in checking it out, by the way. You might go on retreat to contemplate a particular text, spiritual text. And there's an example of this is found in a book, again, we have in the library that I mentioned earlier, The Song of the Profound View. And it's written by a Tibetan master named Geshe Rabten. And he describes how he went on retreat to contemplate uh, certain works by a, a, an ancient famous Tibetan master, Tsongkhapa. And particularly these works dealt with the doctrine of the emptiness of uh, all phenomena. And this is a, a rather mysterious doctrine, even to Tibetans. And the Tibetans go through 
these colleges and they learn the doctrine in detail, but without the meditative experience, it doesn't do much good. You have an intellectual knowledge of the doctrine, you can spout it back on tests and get A's, but it doesn't transform your life. So even though he was already considered a great master, he took these texts and he went off and he found a little hut uh, that was falling down and he, he went into solitude and he put up with rainstorms and cold and all that, just like Igarjuk described, solitude and suffering. And he sat down with these texts and he began to meditate with them. And at one point he describes uh, meditating with this the central pillar that supported this little hut. And he'd sit down with this text and he's now trying to not only understand intellectually, but have an experiential understanding of this emptiness of all phenomena. So here's what he says. When conducting this analysis, I would first think, before me is a pillar. And in thinking, this is a pillar, the appearance of a real, solid pillar existing by virtue of its own characteristics would appear to my mind. At these times, I would employ a line of reasoning that sought to reveal the ultimate truth of the object. So he's, he's read all this stuff. Now he's sitting down, he's looking at a pillar, and he is recognizing that he experiences just like you experience it. He looks at the pillar, looks like a real solid object appearing to his mind. Then he goes back to the text, and he makes the analysis, and then he keeps referring back to the pillar. And he does this for days. And eventually he comes to an experience, not just an intellectual understanding, but an actual experience that the pillar has no uh, uh, intrinsic existence on its own, that is simply an appearance of the mind. So this is an example of a quite advanced practice, but one of the purposes you might go on retreat, to actually take some of these texts, some of these teachings you've had, and now to really delve into them uh, through your own experience. Uh, Retreats can be for different lengths of time. In some sense, you could say your daily prayer or meditation, if you have a daily prayer or meditation practice, is a kind of mini-retreat. You know, you take out half an hour from your busy day, and uh, you turn off the phones, turn off the TV, and you sit there on your pillow. That is a kind of retreat. Uh, Jesus advised, when you pray, go into your closet and close the door and pray to your Father who is hidden. And your Father who sees what is hidden will respond to you. So this is exactly the advice of going on a little mini-retreat. For the purposes of uh, semantic clarity, I would say, probably you could say a retreat is a minimum of 24 hours. Otherwise, you probably want to talk about you're having a long meditation session or a long prayer session or something like that. That's just a, a, as I say, a convenience to talk about it that way. But if we think of a retreat as being at least 24 hours, then retreats can vary in length uh, starting from that. You could go on a three-day retreat, you could go on a seven-day retreat, you could go on a 30-day retreat. Uh, in a standard Sufi retreat, in uh, uh, it's called in Turkish anyway, a halvet, lasts for 40 days. And a, uh, a sheikh seals you into a little apartment or something and people bring you food and you're in there for 40 days. Uh, Ibn Arabi, uh, describes another retreat that he undertook as a young man, which lasted much longer. And in this one retreat, he went through the whole spiritual path and attained Gnosis. He says, I began my retreat at the first light, and I had reached opening before sunrise. After that, I entered the shining of the full moon and other stations, one after another. 
I stayed in my place for 14 months. Through that, I gained all the mysteries which I put down in writing after opening. So in other words, he went through all the stages of a spiritual path in 14 months, being on retreat. A, uh, in the Tibetan tradition, you can go on retreat for any length of time, three days, 30 days, uh, three months. But a, a, what's considered a, a really uh, full, intense retreat is three years, three months, three weeks, and three days. And some of you know that our practitioners group goes up to Cloud Mountain, this uh, Buddhist retreat center up in Washington State. And for the last few years we've been going up there, there was a nun up there who was doing a three-year, three-month, three-week, three-day retreat. And we didn't see her much. She was in a little trailer on the property, but every once in a while you'd see her walking around. And the last time, two, I guess it was two times ago, when we went up, she had completed her retreat and gone off. So it's, uh, she was a Westerner. She was, not a, uh, she was a practitioner of Tibetan Buddhism, but she was a Westerner. So these things are not um, beyond the range of possibility, even in our culture and our society. Uh, retreats can be conducted in different locations. I think, it, personally, that it's very beneficial to leave home. Uh, that you might go to a retreat center, the way Jennifer is. Uh, you might go to even just a hotel out in the country and check into a hotel with a little kitchenette. But your home, first of all, even though you may close the doors and whatnot, people are still apt to come by to call. You also have distractions around. You'll be walking to the bathroom, you'll pass the stack of bills, and you'll start thinking about, i got to pay my bills and all that. If you go off and leave your home, uh, you can avoid that. And this has been the traditional advice in most traditions. This is from the Upanishads. Find a quiet retreat for the practice of yoga, sheltered from the wind, level and clean, free from rubbish, smoldering fires and ugliness where the sound of waters and the beauty of the place help thought and contemplation. Now, I must say, this is not about going to nature and appreciating uh, nature. The, the idea here is to, uh, if you're in nice surroundings, beautiful surroundings, then you're not uh, you know, constantly worried about, uh, frightened of your, what might happen around you and so forth. This is, the beauty here is to make you go inward, not to, not to have a nature trip, so to speak. If possible, it's good to have others wait on you while you're in retreat to supply your food and whatever else is necessary. So if you go to a retreat center like Cloud Mountain, they have a trained staff. That's what they do. They prepare your meals. Uh, you know, they take care of things. Uh, so when, the, when the toilet paper runs out in the bathroom, they put it in and so forth. So the idea here is just to eliminate as much as possible anything else than your practice, what you're focused on. But it is possible to make a retreat in your own home if you can. And while Jennifer's going down to the um, Immaculate Heart Hermitage for this next week, I'm going to be here on retreat. Lao Tzu, uh, who is the author of the Tao Te Ching, the great uh, uh, Taoist work, writes, Without stirring abroad, one can know the whole world. Without looking out the window, one can see the way of heaven. And this is very much a description of... Uh, this idea that it is not necessary to gain spiritual knowledge to go anywhere. In fact, it's to go inside is what's really important, not to travel around different places. A retreat can be made in a group or it can be made solo. 
it's very uh, important to go with a group if you don't have much self-discipline. The great advantage of a group is that it already has a structure. So if you go with a group, there will be a meditation schedule, there'll be eating schedule and so forth. Uh, and for most people, uh, this is a great benefit because you can just submit yourself to the discipline of the retreat and you don't have to worry about it at all. And so you just go along with the program. It sort of carries you along. If you have developed a strong sense of self-discipline, uh, then a solo retreat can actually uh, at times be more powerful and more intense. Uh, a lot of people are able to go deeper when they are alone rather than a company of other people, even though everybody else may be in silence. Um, in the retreats that we take at Cloud Mountain, most of it we do together, but towards the end we start having solo periods and the last day is a solo day. But if you do not have self-discipline, um, it's, it's, I think, much better to go on retreat with a group. And of course, in the beginning, you might go on a retreat with a group for a while until you get uh, to see how this works, and then you can establish your own discipline. The discipline, though, is imperative, whether it comes from the group or whether it's something you impose for yourself. Uh, it usually includes vows, uh, rules that you follow, a schedule that you follow, and so forth. Um, this is what George Sword, again, the Lakota elder, says about the vision quest. The usual way to seek a vision is to purify the body in an aniti, a sweat, by pouring water on hot stones, and then go naked, only wrapped in a robe, to the top of a hill, and stay there without speaking to anyone of mankind, or eating or drinking, and thinking continually about the vision he wishes. So the first thing, it begins with a ritual that, that marks the uh, transition from a uh, mundane activities to a sacred activity. You go into a sweat, you purify yourself, right? And then you strip off everything but a robe. Again, this is this whole idea of becoming as naked as possible with the least distractions. And then you go off to the hilltop and there are rules. You don't talk to any people. It's interesting, it says you don't talk to any of mankind because if animals come to talk to you, that, that could be a, they could be bringing you a sacred message. Um, and so, you know, you may want to en engage with them. Uh, no eating uh, and no drinking and keeping your mind continually focused on your vision. So these, these are very definite rules that you will take if you're a Lakota going on a vision quest uh, that you submit to. Without rules and a schedule, it's very easy to while away the time in fantasies and daydreams. And you think, oh, I, I'm just going to go off to, I'll get check out a little a room in a little motel in the mountains, and I'll go off on a retreat. And you haven't thought about it, you'll get there, and you'll you'll have your little coffee in the morning with your, you know, croissant, and you'll look out the window, and you'll sit a little bit for meditation for 10 or 15 minutes, you'll get bored, you think, well, I'll take a walk, and you pretty soon you've gone for three days, and uh, you won't have done any intensive practice. You might have a nice relaxing weekend, which just uh, it can't hurt you, but it won't be a spiritual retreat. So if you want to make it a spiritual retreat, it's very important to go with a, a schedule, a discipline. Here's what Ibn Arabi says. For God's sake, do not enter retreat until you know what your station is and know your strength in respect to the power of imagination. For if your imagination rules you, then there is no road to retreat except by the hand of a sheikh who is discriminating and aware. If your imagination is under control, then enter the retreat without fear. So he's talking about if you, uh, again, if you 
have enough uh, self-discipline not to be ruled by your imagination, whatever comes up that, you know, uh, you want to go here, there, whatever, then you need a uh, sheikh, a, a, uh, a teacher. And uh, in some Sufi retreats, the teacher, or at least the teacher's representative, will come and check on you during the day and, you know, just to make sure everything's okay, but also to make sure you're not having problems and whatnot. Um, so he makes this point. If you have the self-discipline, then, then go ahead and go into retreat on your own. It's also important because uh, a, a, a solo retreat particularly uh, can, can become very intense and very powerful and if you are not prepared for it, you can get yourself into trouble. So uh, part of having a schedule and part of having uh, rules to follow is that you don't just get lost in imagination. I'll give you one example that I heard of. Uh, so this is uh, secondhand knowledge, but uh, a friend of mine who was living in Nepal in a Tibetan community uh, was studying with a Tibetan master there and a Westerner showed up and wanted to do a dark retreat. That's where you go into a cave for 30 days and they seal you into a cave. It's literally physically all dark. And the Tibetan master would not give permission because he said, you're not ready for this, you're not prepared. But he insisted, so he went off and he found himself a cave and he sealed himself in and they literally carried him away in a straitjacket. Uh, so it, this, there can be some danger here. It's not uh, common, but uh, it's to be noted. Whatever your purpose uh, for going on a retreat, the fundamental practice, the fundamental principle of the practice, I should say, that keeps coming up over and over again, is, as George Sword said, to keep your mind focused on the vision uh, that you're uh, wanting, uh, if it's to uh, intensify a practice, to keep your mind on that, if it's to contemplate a text, to keep your mind on that. So again, this is controlling, as Abina Rabi says, the wandering imagination, the thoughts. Uh, and there are various ways to do this. Um, here's what Abraham Abulafi, a great Kabbalist, who are the mystics of the Jewish tradition, says. Cleanse the body and choose a lonely house where none shall hear thy voice. In the hour when thou preparest thyself to speak with thy creator, and thou wishest him to reveal his might to thee, then be careful to abstract all thy thought from the vanities of this world. So look, this, how closely this is to uh, this Lakota vision quest. First you clean your body. In the, in the Lakota tradition, you go into a sweat. You find a lonely house. In the Lakota tradition, you go off to a lonely hill. Uh, it's the same thing, right? And then uh, you uh, take your mind off the vanities of this world. And then this is one of my favorite analogies for, you might say, the attitude to have on a retreat. He continues, he says, Feel thyself like an envoy whom the king and his ministers are to send on a mission, and he is waiting to hear something about his mission from their lips, be it from the king himself or be it from one of his servants. So it's this idea of preparing yourself, going on a retreat, but not going with a demanding attitude or with expectations about what you're going to get. You are opening yourself uh, to guidance from this realm. And if you get it, fine. If you don't, fine. Uh, in the Hindu tradition, that this would be put as being divorced uh, from the fruit of your action, being detached from the fruit of your action. You go 
and you open yourself and then the rest is up to God. And if you're attached to having some result, then you'll just come back disappointed and suffering and so forth. Uh, to avoid distraction, usually on a retreat, you do some form of a, a practice of concentration. Jacob Bohm, was a great Christian mystic, writes, Cease but from thine own activity, steadfastly fixing thy eye upon one point. For, for this end, gather in all thy thoughts, and by faith press into the center, laying hold upon the word of God, which is infallible and which hath called thee. So this is this whole idea, instead of running around this outer circle, chasing what you like and don't like, and thinking about the things of the past and the things of the future, you fix on some one point, and that might be uh, uh, the name of God or anything, and then just hold on to that, and through that you start to pass into the center, as he puts it. Uh, very often the, the point that's to be held on to in traditions is uh, a mantra or a prayer, or it's called in Sufism a zikr, uh, some sort of verbal expression, verbal repetition, verbal thought. In the Christian uh, mystics, the common one for them is the Jesus prayer, which is, Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And that's just repeated over and over and over. It's just like a mantra in the Hindu tradition. Here's what uh, Ibn Arabi advises. Occupy yourself with zikr, the remembrance of God, with whatever zikr you choose. The highest of them is the greatest name. It is your saying, Allah, Allah, and nothing besides Allah. So he's saying this it can be just that simple. You just use that as the point that you're uh, focusing on. One of the most beautiful descriptions, in my opinion, of how this works comes from the Upanishads, the great classics of Hindu uh, mysticism. And it says, Take up the great bow of the Upanishads and place upon it the sharp arrow of concentration. Draw it back with a mind fixed on Brahman and strike the mark, that which is eternal. Om is the bow, you are the arrow, Brahman is the mark. It is struck by an undistracted mind, then you become one with Brahman, even as the arrow becomes one with the target. So here the advice is to focus on Om, the sacred syllable Om, just the way Ibn Arabi talks about Allah, and you use that to keep your mind undistracted. And I think that's just its a lovely image to uh, this, the idea that the arrow hitting the target and becoming one with it. When attention becomes stilled through some sort of practice like this, a mantra or focusing on the breath or whatever, and uh, thoughts begin to subside, these other realms begin to naturally shine through. You don't have to do a lot of work. You have to have patience and you have to stay there. But it's not like you have to generate anything. These are not uh, creations of your private imagination. They are there. So it's just a question of, uh, you know, cleaning the window so that you can see through what's beyond on the other side. So these practices, by stilling the mind, open you to what? to visions, to insights, to guidance. It may come in the form of an actual vision. You may, may be sitting there and you may see in your mind's eye a, a, a visionary guide come and give you some advice, verbal advice. You may hear it in your mind. 
It may be insights, the kind that uh, Geshe Rabten was after when he was looking at this pillar, trying to understand uh, this text in his own experience. And then you have these, aha, I see, the world shifts for you. There's a transformation in your perception of the world. And you actually see now what the great master was talking about. Uh, whatever form it comes in, it will be characterized by two things, spontaneity and autonomy. And that's how you can distinguish this from the creations of your own imagination, your own fantasies. It'll have that sense of uh, coming from another realm, so to speak. It'll, have a, it'll spontaneously appear. These insights uh, are not the results of step-by-step -step reasoning. And it'll have the character of autonomy, not something you thought up. So if you sit around visualizing angels that come to speak to you and they say, yes, you deserve a vacation in Hawaii, go to Hawaii next month, that is, chances are that is not a, an archetypal guide visiting you. Chances are that's your own ego thoughts uh, uh, churning up. These sorts of visions, guidance, insights and stuff are tremendously important on a spiritual path. They deepen your understanding of the teachings. They deepen your understanding of yourself. They transform your literal experience of the world, your perception of things. But if you, and you only do this at advanced stages of a path, if you even disregard those and treat those as distractions and let those pass, that's how you open yourself up to the light of consciousness itself, of pure consciousness. Here's, for instance, what Ibn Arabi writes about those who are seeking Allah himself, not just guidance and so forth. And if everything in the universe should be spread before you, receive it graciously, but do not stop there. Persist in your quest, for he is testing you. If you stay with what is offered, he will escape you. But if you attain him, nothing will escape you. So again, this is not to say the first time you go off and retreat, uh, if you get a, a great vision and, and valuable guidance, that would be wonderful. Most people don't even get that on a first retreat, frankly. But it's, it's a reminder that anything in form is not yet God, not yet Brahman, not yet the great Tao. This is why even in the Hindu tradition, even bliss ultimately becomes an obstacle. If you want bliss on a spiritual path, you will get bliss. It won't last forever, or it's a state, it'll pass away. But if you want Brahman, if you want God uh, himself, herself, if you want the great Tao, it is not any kind of form, not any sort of experience in that sense that passes away. And so you have to just continue with the same principle you started with, and that is to stay still. Uh, Joseph Campbell once described uh, the whole practice of yogi with uh, yoga with a very uh, uh, image that's taken from our culture. He says, the yogi goes on strike, and the yogi does not answer any call except the call of God. And all of us are always answering other calls. We're answering the calls of our bodily needs, our emotional needs, our thought needs. And even in these realms, you're answering the call of some visionary form or whatever. But the, the uh, yogi who's pressing on all the way to the center uh, is on strike, does not answer any of those calls, will not be moved until actual, uh, the actual uh, uh, revelation of uh, the divine takes place. So, 
Uh, then finally, uh, what happens at the end of the retreat? This is very important. When you return from a, a retreat, if you haven't been with a teacher and had a chance to talk to a teacher on the retreat, it's very important to uh, talk to your teacher about your experiences on the retreat. In the Lakota tradition, every time these people went up for a vision quest on the hill, the first thing they do is come back and they talk to the shaman. And, and if the shaman uh, has trouble interpreting what happened to uh, the vision quester, they get together a council of shamans and they discuss the various interpretations. Sometimes the kinds of guidance, as I said before, can be obscure to you. It can come in symbolic form, just the way dreams can sometimes be obscure unless you have other people to uh, help you interpret them. The, uh, it's particularly important to talk to a teacher uh, if you think you've had very profound experiences or insights because it's very easy to be misled by the ego, especially here if you're uh, traveling on your own. So it's very important to discuss uh, your experiences with a, a qualified teacher after you come back from retreat. Sometimes the most important uh, things that happen to you are not the most spectacular, and sometimes the spectacular things are not very important, particularly, by the way, in the beginning. These concentration practices can produce all sorts of um, secondary subtle realm phenomena, auras and lights and colors and bells and whatever, you know? It would be far more important to have a little insight into the true emptiness of all things, which would not uh, involve any sort of sensory manifestation of phenomena. So it's just to, to have somebody who has uh, had experience with this to be able to put your experiences in a little perspective. That's really what it's all about. Now, finally, uh, at the end of this talk here, uh, Jennifer has very generously agreed to let me read you the schedule that she made up for herself for going on this trip and retreat, starting uh, right after we end here. And this is something that basically she devised, and then she talked to me as her teacher about it and made a few little adjustments, but it's something that... Uh, worked out together that seemed to be right for her and most comfortable, uh, but without being too lax, of course. Uh, anyway, I thought I'd read it to you here as a sample in case any of you uh, would be interested in going on a retreat, particularly a solo retreat. As I said, uh, if you go on with a group, usually there's already a program to follow. Now, the retreat place that she's going to be at is a Catholic monastery, and they have several services that are open to retreatants if you wish to join them. So as we go through this, you'll see that she, she's going to be joining them for the beginning uh, service and the end service of the day. There are others offered during the day, and she decided not to attend those. Then also, this is a schedule for the whole trip, because she wants to think of the whole trip as a spiritual journey. It's not like going down five days retreat and then the rest of it's all vacation. So there are trip vows and little trip practices to keep the whole trip focused on a spiritual quest. And then the retreat part will be the intense part of it. So it's the retreat is part of a larger context here. So first of all, there's the traveling schedule. First of all, getting up in the morning She's going to do a basic zikr meditation. I mentioned that in the talk. Zikr is uh, simply a Sufi form of mantra, basically. There are standard zikrs. 
that are little phrases that have to do with God's names and whatnot. And she's been do going to a zikr practice here in Eugene's, preparing for this, learning some zikrs, so she has some zikrs. So first thing she gets up in the morning, she'll do zikr. Then every time she stops, she'll say uh, a, a short seven-line prayer, again from the, from the Islamic tradition, this is the Fatiha. So if she stops for gas, she stops, she says her little prayer. If she stops to get a cup of coffee, she stops and says her little prayer. If she pulls off in one of those uh, lookout points, you know, uh, she says her little prayer. That's just a constantly reminder uh, that what the main purpose of this trip is about. Then in the evening, she'll uh, do ascending and taking practice. This is a, comes from the Buddhist tradition. It's a practice of compassion uh, that I won't describe here in detail. Most of you know about it. If you don't, I can describe it to you uh, afterwards. And then she'll do a short zikr before sleep. And then whenever possible in between here, she'll be reading Rumi, who is a great uh, Sufi, and take, she's taking along the Quran uh, as a backup. A lot of the uh, Rumi's poetry refers to things from the Quran, so she'll have that Quran to refer to. So that's the, this is the program the schedule for every day of the traveling. Now, the retreat schedule itself, uh, the monastery has their own wake-up bell that goes off at 5.30 in the morning. That's the warning bell, so she will get up with the warning bell, then she'll get a, have a little chance to wash her face, dress. She's got 15 minutes. At 5.45, vigils begin, and that's a uh, Catholic service and a morning service. She'll attend vigils, then she'll have breakfast, she'll be in a little trailer, and they, uh, they bring you the breakfast, or you go get the breakfast? It's in the food's in the refrigerator. The food's over there. So she'll prepare her breakfast, uh, do the dishes, shower, dress. Uh, so, And these times aren't put in here because she's not sure how long the vigil's going to last and so forth, but uh, probably this be, I would guess, five, let's say six... She should be finished with that, sounds like about 8, 8.30. Then she'll do ascending and taking practice. Then she'll do a half hour of reading Rumi. And then she'll do zikr until 12.30. So that's going to be a nice three hours worth of zikr there in the morning to do. Then uh, at 12.30, she goes to the kitchen. She picks up the main meal of the day, takes it back to her trailer, washes her dishes. And then she has a little rest period. She can walk and write in her journal and whatnot. And then at 2 o'clock, uh, she begins back on a more rigorous schedule. She'll do a half-hour reading of Rumi, then uh, from 2.30 to 5, Zikr, then a break from 5 to 6, again, time to relax. It's important on these retreats to build in some time to just relax. Otherwise, your mind's going to get too screwed up and too tense if you try to make it too rigorous, you know. So to build in times, specific times, where you can go for a walk or, you know, do a little yoga or whatever or just... Uh, uh, let the mind drift for a while, uh, especially uh, if you're uh, new at you know, going on retreat. Uh, but the point is to build in that time, so it has a definite time, so you don't just start uh, whiling away the whole day this way. That's really the point of this. Uh, then at uh, 6 o'clock, there's Vespers. That's the evening uh, Catholic ritual. And then there's a meditation period with the monks there, so she'll be attending that. Again, we don't know exactly how long that's going to be, but afterwards there's dinner, uh, a light dinner, and then she's scheduled in time for a longer walk, this is so she can really walk around the grounds after dinner and whatnot. 
Then she comes back, she'll do a half hour of zikr. Then she'll do a half hour of reading and writing in her journal. And then just before she goes to sleep, she'll do a very short zikr, like as she's falling asleep. So she's falling asleep on zikr and waking up with zikr. Then the prime directive for the whole trip is to abandon everything other than God. That's the, that's the kind of uh, thing to keep in mind when her thoughts start to wander off to her work back here. Oh, she left those papers and she didn't give the papers to her boss. What's going to happen? That's the kind of thing in general to abandon, whatever it is, because she's on a quest for the divine here. And then there are specific uh, trip precepts that she's going to take, and I'm going to deliver them to her right here, but I thought we'd do this uh, after a little time for questions and discussion, because once she gets the trip precepts, she's out the door, into her car, and gone. Her retreat, her trip, at least, the, uh, will have begun. So rather than put her under the restraint of these precepts, um, right now I thought we'd... Uh, close the morning with that. So if anybody has any questions or comments or you want to share your own experiences on retreat, now's the time to do it. And if you have any questions that you want to direct to Jennifer, you're welcome to. I checked with this beforehand. I'd just like to thank Jennifer and you for sharing this. This was really interesting to, to get a sense of the schedule and what to do on the solar. So thank you for being to do that. Yeah, I would like to thank you too. Also be um, interested in, in I mean, you don't have to go into a personal thing, but it, how it went, having the discipline, you know, that's possible. Were you able to stick with it? Um, was it difficult? You mean after? Yeah. If, I mean, if you'd be willing to give a little synopsis of that. Sure. That would be really nice to sure. And I admire you for doing this. I think it's great. I don't know about admire, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, Jennifer, in going into this, this commitment, what's been your retreat history? What, what, what kinds of similar things have you done in the past to build up to this? Good question. Um, a lot of years ago, I went with the center group on retreat, it, but the few years that I went, the pictures aren't on the walls. So if you look up there, you don't see me up there very much. Um, then I got a college, a two-year college degree, and I quit going. And um, I also found... Myself, I tend to be very um, self-critical, and uh, sometimes I'll talk about my mind as a dog, and it's out there, oh, so-and-so was late, oh, so-and-so had frivolous experience, oh, and then it turns on me, and it just goes for the jugular. <laughs> and so I've been really reluctant to go on the group retreats, not knowing what to do with that, um, if that would come up and be real strong again. Um, and I read a... Uh, I'm sorry, was that criticism during the retreat you were going yes, to? Yes, oh, okay. right, yeah, and it really, you know, we're supposed to be sitting there meditating, I, I never get the instruction, I'm always so stupid, then I just, I get really critical about everyone and myself, and I hate troll, and I hate everyone, and I hate myself. <laughs> so I read a book about a gal that um, did a Sufi retreat for 40 days, and it was pretty rigorous and it was really inspiring and it you know I keep feeling like well I should I've been out of school for a couple of years I should be going on these retreats I'm married to Joel I should be going on these retreats <laughs> and I finally read a book that was just it inspired me so much and I thought okay I'm 
I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna go either with some other group or by myself so that if all this comes up it's a more it's a I can just see that it's a process that has nothing to do with the people that I'm with or, or work with it where it just feels more comfortable um, so and then also um, there's just a practice that I want to explore more and felt like a retreat was a good way to do that. So that's... On the group retreats, how long have these been before? Maybe three or four days? Or, or five, days. five days. Okay, I'm yeah. just curious about the relative time. Five days. Great. And the zikr you're doing is a chant, is it with the super Yeah, it's out loud. Yeah. That's a powerful. So have you done solo retreats before? This, no. This is your first one? Yeah. Well, you did go down to uh, Heart Mountain that one time. Yeah, I did, I did a um, fast for three days out in the wilderness, but I had a Project Safe Run dog with me then. And, that, and I was out, I think, for ten days, but three days was kind of retreat-like. Yeah. Kind of more like um, the uh, Vision Quest book. Which was the book that inspired you, one of the ones there? That were, you know, Unfortunately, it's not in the library yet, but in September it should be. It's called 40 Days, and it's um, just a diary of a 40-day experience. That was a pretty long retreat. <laughs> I think it's very good to, you know, work your way up to mm -hmm. retreats. I mean, that, I think if you've never been on a retreat before, it'd be... Uh, in most cases, not wise to go on a 40-day retreat. Try three days, you know, but really go away for a weekend and try, you know, then a week and so forth. Uh, we are going to try to start doing 10-day retreats, our practitioners group, because a lot of people find that five days is just when you get, o you're just beginning to get over, you know, the discomfort and all that and just really begin beginning to get into it. So in some ways... A 10-day retreat can be easier than just a five-day retreat because almost always it's just like going anywhere. You you know, the first few days you're adjusting to new surroundings and all that and you really haven't settled into it. Uh, but still, I think it's a good idea to not try to bite off more than you can chew and test yourself a little bit, you know. So if I were starting off just going on retreats, I would, I would try like a three, four-day retreat. Uh, if that goes well, then start thinking about doing longer ones. I wonder what the purpose of your personal retreat is, Joel. That's easy. Some of my uh, students are getting ahead of me in meditation. They're going to be better meditators than me. And I don't get a chance to meditate nearly as much as I want to or even as intensely. When I go on these retreats, uh, you know, I am uh, have to talks to prepare, and then people come to see me in between sessions and stuff like that. So it's, I don't... I get to meditate when we're all meditating together, but I don't really get to do that. So I'm going to be working with some uh, Dzogchen texts. See if I can catch up with my students. <laughs> I yeah. just, when I went on my Apache vision quest, they told me that uh, this life was the retreat. <laughs> We're all really spiritual beings living in this other place, and we've come here on retreat.
retreat from hell. Is there a place, you know, really nearby that you recommend that if somebody wanted to go for two, three days that you're aware of? The, what, the Trappist uh, place. Yeah. Mike's been on several of these. Our Lady of Guadalupe, the Trappist Monastery up in Lafayette, which is a little bit south of Portland. And uh, they have a very nice facility, and uh, they feed you and stuff, and it's comfortable. And uh, they have a, uh, they're working four months in advance now. So my current understanding, I spoke to them a couple of weeks ago, was that if you want to go there, you should call and try to make a reservation for four months from now. Uh, it's, I've never been able to just say I want to go there and just mm -hmm. go there. It's always had to be a planning mm -hmm. process. But you could go two, three days there. That's a place. Uh, yeah, uh, I don't know exactly what their max is, but I think it might be about a week or something, mm -hmm. or whatever. You know, one day, two days, whatever. Okay. If uh, if there are no more questions, I'm going to uh, administer these vows. If you will move a little closer. It's like getting married again or something. <laughs> <laughs> Not to me, though. <laughs> if you will please repeat after me. I vow to strictly adhere to our ten selfless precepts. I vow to strictly adhere to our ten selfless precepts. In addition, In addition, I vow to abandon luxuries. I vow to abandon luxuries. Especially expensive meals and accommodations. Especially expensive meals and accommodations. I vow to abandon worldly distractions. I vow to abandon worldly distractions. Especially worldly media, newspapers, radio, TV. Especially worldly media, newspapers, radio, and TV. I vow to abandon judgments. I vow to abandon judgments. Especially of people food, conditions, and spiritual states, especially people, food, conditions, and spiritual states, practicing inner silence and outward humility, practicing inner silence and outward humility. I vow to abandon selfish thoughts of worldly gain and loss. I vow to abandon selfish thoughts of worldly gain and loss. And then finally is the dedication. I undertake this retreat for the benefit of all beings. I undertake this retreat for the benefit of all beings. You go with my blessings. May you have a safe trip and a fruitful retreat. Thank you.